I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 34. But I want to read for us from verse 19 of chapter 6, just for the sake of context. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we simply just ask that these words of Jesus would shake us, convict us, encourage us, illumine our minds and give us understanding to see how foolish it is to be anxious and worried. And I pray, Lord, that through this you would help us and grow our faith in you, knowing that, as Jesus says, we do not need to be anxious about anything. So guide us now as we look to your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we're living 
in Babylon, which I have suggested throughout this series, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Babylon is a place is a place riddled with worry and anxiety. We're living in a culture that is plagued with anxiety and worry. More and more people are unable to function within society without some kind of anxiety pills to calm them down. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't ever times in which pills like that may help. But I do think there is a problem when a society becomes dependent upon such a thing. Young people are especially plagued with worry and and, 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 and anxiety. I remember when Gracie took a, a bunch of high school uh, female students to India, and she couldn't believe the anxiety that these young ladies were plagued by. They didn't know how to cope. And they were on so many different drugs to help them cope. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, Uh, The feeling that we are in over our heads affects one in five of us to a paralyzing degree. And there are a lot of factors for why this is so, and I don't suggest to know them all. Social media has definitely played a role, uh, especially amongst young people, especially amongst young girls, trying to build a complete identity through likes and unlikes. There are many factors of which I don't have time to get into this morning. I think, for example, the way we live life in our modern world is anti-human and destructive to our humanity and our well-being. But I do believe that one of the major, one of the major factors is a theological one. A society that does not have a firm belief a firm belief in a transcendent personal God who is in control will inevitably lead to a culture plagued by worry and anxiety. We're living in the age of anxiety, and as Christians, we need to think about how God wants us to approach the issue and work the issue of anxiety and worry. See, if Babylon is anxious then we as followers of Jesus have a responsibility, a duty to not join in on Babylon's anxiety because our confidence and our hope resides in God alone. See, if we're just as worried, if we're just as anxious as the citizens of Babylon, then what makes us different as followers of Jesus? And so this morning we're going to wrestle with the issue of anxiety and worry because Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, addresses it head on. I think it's fascinating that that this Sermon on the Mount is all about virtue, and one of the main sections is dealing with the issue of anxiety and worry. Now, as we've made our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been observing this greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees that Jesus tells his disciples that they must live according to. And that this righteousness, this idea of whole person behavior, that is your internal relates or is in line with your external behavior, this whole person behavior is what leads to the flourishing or whole life that God wills for his children. And so uh, in chapter 5, from verses 21 to 47, we saw 
Jesus articulate this greater righteousness in relation to the law. He provided six examples, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love for your enemies. And then beginning in chapter 6, Jesus articulates this greater righteousness in relation to piety or devotion to God. And there he provides three examples, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. And in all these examples, Jesus is demanding that his disciples examine their hearts to see that the motive for why they do these things isn't driven by the praise of man, but rather the praise of God. And therefore, we ought to live our faith in secret. That is, live in such a way that the goal of our devotion is not to draw attention to ourselves, but rather to please God and to seek God's reward. And then in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 6, we have this transitional statement. That is, verses 19 to 21 is meant to be a summary of verses 1 to 18 of chapter 6. But it's also meant to transition us to the next section of Jesus continuing to unpack this greater righteousness. See, in verses 19 to 21, you have this call to store up treasures in heaven in contrast to storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. But it captures what one verses 1 to 18 is all about. Don't seek the rewards of man that are fickle and temporary, but seek the rewards of God that are imperishable and eternal. But these verses also launch us into Jesus' instruction from verse 22 to 34. And it's here where Jesus articulates for us this greater righteousness, not in relation to the law or piety, but rather in relation to the goods of the world. He addresses, the, he addresses greed and the desire for material wealth and tells us in verse 24 that we cannot serve both God and money. In other words, to try to serve both God and money is not whole person righteousness. It's a heart that is divided. It's not the pure in heart. That is those who are singular in their devotion to God. But after he addresses greed, he then addresses our relationship to material needs. And specifically, that of worry and anxiousness when we think about the goods of this world and the needs that we have. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning in verses 25 to 34. Now, just like in the other sections, there is a similar structure. There's the thematic statement or the main point, and then Jesus illustrates that point usually with a few examples. And here in verses 25 to 34, there's that a similar pattern. In verse 25, Jesus makes his introductory or thematic statement. And then in verses 26 to 32, he illustrates with two examples that also have elements of rebuke, as we'll see. And then in verses 33 to 34, we have Jesus's concluding exhortation and the rationale behind it all. But you'll notice the major theme in these verses is that of worry and anxiety. Three times 
Jesus exhorts his disciples to not be anxious. And each time you see the related word, therefore. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. Verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. So three negative exhortations do not be anxious. But there is also one positive exhortation, and that is in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in time, Lord willing, we'll see how that all fits together. So let's begin by looking at the main exhortation or the introductory statement in verse 25. And then we'll slowly make our way through the rest of the passage. So remember, this section is Jesus describing this greater righteousness in relation to the goods of the world. So look at verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now a few things we need to see here. Notice that Jesus begins this section with a therefore. And that's important because it's connected to what he has just said about money and wealth. There's a direct correlation between anxiety and greed. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will wear. In other words, if your heart is about storing up treasures on earth, if you're devoted to money and wealth, then you will be anxious about your basic necessities. Secondly, Jesus tells us not to be anxious about our most basic needs, food, drink, and clothing, because there are more important things in life than that. That's what he says, right? Is not life more? Is it not more than food and the body more than clothing? And as followers of Jesus, the answer to that question is yes. Life is more than our physical necessities. In fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount is Jesus articulating for us what life is truly all about. Jesus is calling us to a flourishing, whole, righteous life that seeks to honor God and His ways with the anticipation for the coming of His kingdom. That's what life is truly all about. And because of this, Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, specifically in regards to your basic necessities, because life is way more than that. If you're always anxious about one's physical and material needs, you're unconsciously implying what life is actually about. You might say that life is more than those things. But the worry about those things reveals in some capacity that really life is only about those things to you. You might not say money and security is what life is all about, but the way you react to these things reveals that's what life is actually about. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have a different calling, a different focus. Your life isn't about living for wealth and false security. Your life is about living for the kingdom of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, as we will see. 
So he provides this introductory statement calling us as his followers to not be anxious about our lives. And then what he does next is provide two illustrations to demonstrate why we as God's children ought not be given over to worry and anxiety. Both these illustrations are, pro- are, are positive examples of God's providential care. And after each illustration, he also leaves us with a few questions, and these questions have a subtle rebuke in them. The questions are meant to show us how foolish it is to be anxious. And these questions also confront us about our faith. What kind of faith do we actually have? In the first illustration, he addresses our need for sustenance, food and drink. In the second illustration, he addresses our need for clothing. So let's tackle the first illustration and the questions that Jesus leaves us with, and then we'll tackle the second illustration. So look at verse 26. This is the first illustration, and here he's making reference to the idea of sustenance. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So Jesus calls us to look at nature. Because if we're willing to stop and look and contemplate, there are things we can learn about God through nature. In fact, the command here is very strong. It's more than just look. It's more like fix your eyes. Fix your eyes on the birds of the air. See, the scriptures often tell us to look at the natural world because in contemplating the natural world, we, world, we can actually gain understanding about God and his ways and really about life itself. Now, here he holds up the example of birds. Now, if you've observed birds or learned anything about them, you'll know that birds live a life on daily sustenance. They're not engaging in the growing of crops. They don't store up food that they've harvested. And yet Jesus says, yet your heavenly father feeds them. And notice that Jesus doesn't refer to God as the heavenly father of birds. He says, your heavenly father feeds them. And that's why he says with his first question, are you not? of more value than they? You see, Jesus here is making a lesser to greater argument. If God cares for and feeds the birds, sustains them, which are far less valuable to him in comparison to his children, then won't he also care for you and feed you? Do you really think He's going to neglect you because he's so caught up in caring for the birds? If he cares for the birds, you can sure as bet that he's going to care for you. See, here's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at the birds, fix our eyes upon the birds, and see how they are fed, and conclude this. I know that in God's economy... I am of far more valuable to him than any bird. So if I see him caring for the birds in all these unique ways, I must conclude that he'll also take care of me as well. 
In fact, it would be utterly irrational to conclude anything else. This is why Martin Luther once said that the birds are preaching to us. You see, he is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. It is a great and abiding disgrace to us that in the gospel, a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men. Whenever you listen to a nightingale, therefore, you are listening to an excellent preacher. It is as if he were saying, I prefer to be in the Lord's kitchen. He has made heaven and earth, and he himself is the cook and the host. Every day he feeds and nourishes innumerable little birds out of his hand. Christian, do you believe that you're of more value to your heavenly Father than the birds? Because when we worry and are anxious, in some sense we're implying believing that God cares for us less than he does for the birds. Really, we're implying that we don't have a heavenly father who cares for us, or at least we may have a heavenly father, but he's indifferent to our needs. Did you hear what the robin said to the sparrow? Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Brothers and sisters, are you not of more value than the birds of the air? Now, in light of this illustration of God's provision for the birds, Jesus asks us a pointed question in verse 27, and it's meant to be a slight rebuke because it shows us the ridiculousness of worry and being anxious. Look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his stand of life? And of course, the question is, none of us can. In other words, what does being anxious remotely gain for you? There hasn't been a single moment in your life where being worried or anxious has added a single hour, let alone a minute, to your life. I think I made reference to this before in relation to COVID. Being worried about COVID did not add a single hour to any of our lives. You see, with this question from Jesus, he's slightly rebuking us and he's reminding us who's actually in control of our lives. And it's not us, it's God. And through this question, he's placing before us whether to live by wisdom or foolishness. To be worried and anxious about our basic necessities is not the flourishing, wise life, but the foolish life, because worry has never done anything for anyone. Now, there are a few things we need to understand that Jesus isn't saying in light of what he says in these verses. For one, Jesus isn't commending irresponsibility. He's not saying, God's going to care for you, therefore you can be irresponsible with the resources you've been given. 
That's not what he's saying whatsoever. If you're foolish with the resources God has given you, that's on you. And you can't blame God for not meeting your needs because you'd rather have spent it on something that was not necessary. See, Jesus isn't saying that it's therefore okay for you to not think about saving and the like. Paul tells us that if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Jesus isn't rewarding irresponsibility and laziness. He's not saying you can't be thoughtful and invest in things and think about planning for the future. He's not condemning thoughtfulness, but anxious thought. Just take the example of the birds. Jesus tells us that God feeds them and cares for them. But does that mean that the birds are passive and don't do anything? Do you see birds just waiting in their nests, hoping that God will miraculously drop a worm in their nest? No. Birds are active. They go looking, and when they find food and partake of that food, we can say that God has fed them. Sometimes you and I are the ordained means by which we feed, by which God feeds the birds. A few weeks ago, Gracie and Ezra and I were out, and we were having some sandwiches, and this little aggressive bird came up to us, and Inez, of course, wanted to feed the bird despite the fact that we paid for her sandwich. But she wanted her bread for the bird. God, in that moment, fed the bird through my little girl. There's no passivity with birds. They don't just sit around hoping that God will bring them food to eat. In the same way, Christian, Jesus isn't saying that you can just sit around and wait for God to meet your needs. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about our hearts not being enslaved to worriedness and anxiety about our needs. As John Stott says, God's children are promised freedom, neither from work, nor from responsibility, nor from trouble. God doesn't promise you freedom from any of those things, responsibility, work, and trouble, but only from worry. Worry is forbidden to us. It is incompatible with Christian faith. And so Jesus holds up this first example of God's provision and the reason for why we not need be for why we not need to be anxious about what we will eat or drink. He questions us and demands that we think about the foolishness of anxiety and worry. And then in verse 28 to 32, he provides another example with two other rebukes. And this example has to do with clothing for our bodies. So look at verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So Jesus now directs our eyes from the birds in the heavens to now the wild flowers of the field. He invites us to see the beauty of such flowers, 
Yet these flowers did not toil for such beauty. He even compares their beauty to the glory of Solomon and suggests that the glory that Solomon was arrayed in cannot even compare with the wonder and beauty of one of these flowers. But he also shows us the temporary nature of the flowers and the grass. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? What's Jesus getting at? Well, in the ancient world, wild flowers, of course, would become brittle and and the thick grass with the brittle flowers would be cut down and used as fuel in fires. And Jesus is saying that if even something as temporary as flowers, God still providentially clothes and beautifies. And if he does that for the flowers of the field, will he not much more clothe you? I mean, if he, if he cares so much about how the flower looks and clothes the flower and beautifies the flower, despite the fact that in a few days that flower is going to be cut down and burned up, will he not care for you? You see, once again, Jesus goes from the lesser to the greater argument. If God is devoted and committed to clothing the flower and making it as beautiful as it is, though it's alive today and gone tomorrow... Don't you think he's even more so devoted to clothing you? And the answer, of course, is yes. You're of far greater value to God than the flowers that he clothes and beautifies. And this is why Jesus once again subtly rebukes us with the simple question, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? O you of little faith. In other words, your worry about what you'll eat and drink and what you'll wear is evidence of your lack of faith in God's faithfulness to you. If you're always anxious and worried about your basic necessities, about tomorrow and the future, it's evidence that you don't trust God as much as you might think you do. Spurgeon, reflecting on this, said, Lovely lilies. How you rebuke our foolish nervousness. Or as I would put it, lovely lilies, how you rebuke our unbelief. Now Jesus, in light of his two examples in verse 31, he gives his second exhortation about not being anxious and also once again provides a slight rebuke. Look at verse 31. Therefore, that is, in light of these two examples... Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. See, if you're anxious and worried about what you will eat and drink and what you will wear, then what makes you different than the unbelieving pagan Gentiles? If you're consumed with these kinds of anxious questions and seeking after these things, then the reality is you look far more like a citizen of Babylon than a citizen of the kingdom of God. For as Jesus says, it's the Gentiles who seek after these things. And the reason they seek after these things is because they don't know of the heavenly father who knows their needs and can meet their needs. 
Whereas the reason we don't need to be anxious and worried about these things is because, as Jesus puts it, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You see, there are two truths in these verses that allow us or empower us to not worry about these things. The one truth is we are of greater value to God. He truly cares for us. Let's put it like this. If God did not spare his own son in order to rescue and redeem us from our sins, do you think he's going to neglect your basic needs? We are of great value to God. The other truth is precisely what he alludes to at the end of verse 32. God knows what we need. He has a knowledge that is, that is beyond ours with precisely what we need. And these two truths, God cares and God knows, are the foundation for rest and peace in the souls of his children. God cares and God knows are the foundation for rest and peace in the souls of his children. Now, if we're not to be anxious about all these things, and if we're not to seek these things like the Gentiles do, then what are we to seek? Well, Jesus gives us the answer to that question with the climax statement of this passage in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, there are several things we need to see here. For one... Jesus makes reference to two major themes in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of God and righteousness. And we're exhorted to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, here Jesus is, in a way, combining the idea of God's kingdom and his righteousness and calling us to seek these things as one. They're not, as Pennington says, two separate items to be sought, but one. The disciple of Jesus is committed, above all else, to seeking God's reign and his righteousness. That's what his life is supposed to be about. This idea of righteousness in the kingdom of God are often connected throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So, for example, in the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are the ones who receive the kingdom. Also, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he's not using the word first chronologically. That is, you have a list of priorities in your life, and the kingdom of God and the kingdom and God's righteousness are first on that list of priorities. That's not really what Jesus is conveying here. When he uses the word first, he's getting at the major theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount, which is singular devotion to God. It's one singular aim and goal. He's saying, this is what a disciple's life is all about. This is his one priority, the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. It's similar to Jesus' words in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. That is, those who are singular in their focus. They are undivided in their devotion. It is they that will see God. As Pennington says regarding verse 33, the exhortation in verse 33 is a broad vision or marching orders for the Christian way of being in the world, 
being one who is dedicated to God's coming reign and the kind of Christ-centered righteous behavior that marks the kingdom. Seeking the first, the kingdom of God, kingdom and God's righteousness is basically synonymous with the beatitude, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is what true discipleship looks like. This is what the righteous, flourishing life is all about. It's a life that not only obeys, obeys God's law externally, but from the heart. It's a life that is devoted to God and therefore does not seek the fickle praise of man, but rather seeks the rewards that God gives. It's a life that doesn't worry about basic necessities because one is living for God's reign and his righteousness in this life and in the next. This is the greater righteousness that Jesus articulates in relation to the goods of this world. Disciples of Jesus ought not be worried and anxious about their basic necessities because they're focused and devoted on more important things, God's kingdom and his righteousness. Now, just in case we don't get how serious Jesus' instruction is, he once again gives his final exhortation in regards to not being anxious in verse 34. The passage almost seems like it should end at verse 33. But he adds on to verse 34 to once again command us not to be anxious. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now here Jesus gives a future element to his exhortation. The other exhortations were about basic necessities, food, drink, and clothing. But here, he tells us, don't be anxious about the future. And here's why. There's no reason to be anxious about something that does not yet exist. Not only this, Jesus says, there's enough trouble for us in one day. Now that's important. Because Jesus isn't suggesting from any of this that will somehow avoid troubling, difficult situations. Jesus isn't suggesting that at all. There may be times where your bank account is going very low and it is troubling. In fact, he tells us the opposite, right? There is so much trouble in this life that to focus on the trouble in one day is more than enough. Why overwhelm ourselves with tomorrow? Jesus was not a prosperity preacher. Jesus was not a feel-good preacher. You're going to have troubles, so many troubles in this life, that the amount of troubles you have, that one day alone is enough. So why worry about the next day? So don't think that the solution to anxiety is less trouble. That's not remotely what Jesus is speaking of. And yet, despite the troubles, despite the insurmountable level of troubles that are in our lives, he calls us not to be anxious. Now, to end off, I want to do two things. On the one hand, I want to ask and seek to answer, why does Jesus seem so strong in his opposition to worry and anxiety. Why is he so hard? Do not be anxious. Three times repeated over and over again. Why? 
And then secondly, I want to give us a few solutions or some tips, biblical tips that can help with battling anxiety in our lives. Because the fact of the matter is, all of us in some capacity struggle with worry and anxiety. Some of us more so than others, but the reality is we know this is a universal human experience. So first, what's so bad about anxiety that Jesus would strongly exhort us three times not to be anxious? Well, for one, and I've already alluded to this, but worry and anxiety reveals a lack of faith in God's care for you and in his ability to care for you. It's really a distrust in God's faithfulness and commitment to you as his child. Despite the fact that God has demonstrated his faithfulness to you, not only in providing for you, but giving up his only son on your behalf, we still doubt whether or not God is faithful. I mean, what more do we need for us to believe that God is truly trustworthy? All we need to do is look to the blood-soaked cross of our Savior and see God's faithfulness to us. Secondly, the reason why Jesus speaks so strongly against anxiety is because anxiety has the power to shipwreck your faith altogether. Most of us, when we think about the kinds of sins that shipwreck people's faith, we usually think of what we would call pleasure sins. Things like sexual immorality and materialism and worldliness. Most of us don't tend to think that anxiety is all that dangerous to our faith being shipwrecked. But the Bible tells us otherwise. You remember the parable of the sower? You remember the seed that was sown among the thorns? And what Jesus said about the seed thrown among the thorns? Matthew 13, 22. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world, the worries of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches. Isn't that interesting? Here in Matthew 13, worry and riches again are together. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The cares of the world, the worries of the world, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Worry has the power to choke and shipwreck your faith. And this is why Jesus so strongly warns against it. The third reason why I think Jesus warns against it is because being consumed by worry and anxiety will rob you from being a blessing to others. If you are consumed with anxiety and worry, you will be robbed from being a blessing to others. I've never met a sacrificial, servant-hearted individual who was also enslaved to anxiety. I've never met one. 
I mean, how can one give and care for the needs of others when one is overwhelmed and engrossed in their own needs? The worried person tends to be a self-focused person and therefore the needs of others go unnoticed. Now there are other things I could say for why Jesus strongly exhorts us not to be anxious, but these three really stand out. It shows we lack faith, and that is sin. It has the power to shipwreck our faith and will be robbed of being a blessing to others. We will not be able to live out the Sermon on the Mount if we are a worried and anxious people. But how do we actually fight against anxiety as followers of Jesus? Well, this isn't exhaustive, but I want to give you some things that I believe can help that the Word of God tells us. The first is this. You need to learn to see the irrationality of anxiety. That's partly what Jesus is actually trying to do in these verses. He wants us to see how utterly irrational it is to be given over to worry and anxiety. For as he says, which of you have added an hour to his life by being anxious? Secondly, a prayer-filled life is one of the weapons we have against anxiety. Just before these verses, we have the Lord's Prayer, which is the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And instead of worrying and being anxious about what we're to eat and drink, Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer that we're to pray that God would give us this day our daily bread. Or you think of the Apostle Paul, which I mentioned earlier, Paul in Philippians 4, 6-7, do not be anxious about anything. That means anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, the key to waging war against worry is by being on your knees. Thirdly, we must learn to rest in the meticulous providence of God over our lives. God is not just at work in our lives in some cosmic scale, but He's at work in the details of our lives. And we must learn to not only believe intellectually that God is providentially at work in our lives, we must learn to rest in such providence. Like language, language like what if, I think demonstrates our lack of rest in the providence of God. We think, what if I had done this or chosen that? And, and, and that way of thinking assumes that somehow our decision is ultimately what determines how our lives unfold. But to rest in the providence of God is to trust that God is in control in the very details of our lives and He knows what He's doing. But this also means that knowledge of God matters. You can only trust and truly rest 
when you have a certain level of knowledge with another person. And I think it's the same with God. Let me illustrate this. When Gracie and I were dating, engaged, and very early on in our marriage, there was no rest for us. There was insecurity, fear on both our parts. We didn't know each other well enough. There was anxiety and worry. I, for many years, thought my wife's going to leave me, despite the fact that she gave no evidence that she was. But nine years later, because we have stayed committed and getting to know each other and growing together, we trust one another now. We are able to rest in our relationship now in a way that we couldn't nine years ago. And I hope ten years from now, it will be even a greater rest than now. But it requires knowledge. It requires knowing the other. See, if you don't know God intimately, you won't learn to rest in God. I really don't know how one could ever overcome anxiety and worry without a deeply held conviction in the providence of a good, loving, gracious, and sovereign God. The last thing we must do is learn to reorient our our priorities or commitments. Here's what I mean by that. The solution to not being anxious is actually intentionally seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Simply trying to not worry won't help you. You must have your focus on something greater than the things that worry you. Worry and anxiety reveals in some ways whether or not we're actually truly seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So if you are a very anxious person worried about life and all these different things, it's probably because you're not actually seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. As Pennington says, the solution to anxiety is not a simplistic stop worrying, but a redirecting of the the disciple's vision to the proper heart orientation accompanied by a promise of provision. You want to wage war against anxiety in your life? Then put your mind and heart to seeking God and His ways. May God help us by singular, be, may God help us be singularly devoted to his kingdom and his righteousness, trusting that all our daily needs will be met by him. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for all the times we have worried. And, be anxious, and, and have been, been anxious about what we will eat and what we will drink. Our clothing, our homes. Forgive us for how worried we were over these last two years. Whether it was COVID or po- politics, whatever it is. And I pray, God, that you would truly help us to learn to rest in your providence. And that as your people we would truly seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. We pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.